Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm Renters Insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and here I am finally with Allie again. How are you Yay. today, Allie? I'm so happy to have you back. Yeah, <laughs> it's <laughs> It's kind of weird. It's it's weird to be back, but I'm ready. I'm ready. It feels like I haven't recorded with you for years, even though it's only been what three months. But you're back, and you've got a good and there's a good case we're covering today. Yeah, we're gonna start with one that a friend of mine told me about a few years ago. She knows the family involved. She actually grew up in the town where this happened. She remembers when this happened. So a thank you to Marla for making me aware of this case. It's really stuck with me since she told me about it. And this is about the murder of Bill Pruitt and the conviction of his wife, Patty, for that murder and all the things that happened before and after. So let's start with Bill and Patty and their life leading up to Bill's death. Bill met his wife, Patty, while they were seventh graders in Lee Summit, Missouri. And Lee Summit is a suburb of Kansas City, but it's out there a little bit. And so it has some pretty rural areas as well as densely populated residential neighborhoods, and even more so in the 1960s when Bill and Patty met. So he lived in a house that was in a more residential area of town, but she lived out on a ranch. And they had a lot in common. They were both smart and athletic and good looking. But where Patty was outgoing, Bill was quiet and soft-spoken. But in their senior year, Bill finally asked her out on a date, and they married in 1968 when they were just 19 years old, and they started a family pretty much right away. Things were going pretty well for Patty and Bill until one day they were out running errands in Sedalia, Missouri, in May of 1974. Patty had some shopping to do, so she went to do that while Bill did some other errands, and they agreed to meet back up at a park in the city. As Patty walked back toward the park after finishing her shopping, she said she heard footsteps come up behind her. She was taking her time walking because she wasn't in any rush, so she slowed down to let the person behind her pass. She said that when she slowed down, so did the footsteps. And I'm sure a lot of you have had this experience where you're walking with someone behind you. Your alarm bells kind of go off at this point. But As we usually do, she convinced herself it was nothing, so she just started walking again, but she was walking a little faster, and then the footsteps kept pace with her. That's when Patty says she was grabbed and raped by three men. She was pulled into some bushes. And like two-thirds of all sexual assault victims, she did not report the attack to the police. She felt ashamed about what had happened, and she didn't want it reported. She did tell Bill... And they agreed together to keep it between them. Now, according to Patty, Bill had a hard time dealing with it. I mean, she did too, obviously. But Bill, who was pretty understanding and caring about it at first, he started distancing himself and just pulling away from her. In the summer of 1976, Bill and Patty bought a lumber yard in Holden, Missouri. Now, this was Bill's dream. Patty had been a homemaker up until this point. And they had four small children. And this move, it would require a large loan. 
It would mean they'd have to move 30 miles or 48 kilometres away. And for Paddy, she would have to start to work at the lumberyard as Bill's partner. Their marriage was already strained, but this was Bill's dream, so they went for it. Paddy stayed in their old house with the kids in Lee's Summit, while Bill was staying out in Holden. Paddy would go out to Holden and work with Bill during the day, but she kept going back to the old house at night with the kids. They were for all intents and purposes separated at this point and would be for the better part of the year. A few months after the purchase of the lumberyard, Paddy began to have an affair with Ricky Mitts. According to Paddy, it wasn't her only affair, and that Bill also had relationships outside the marriage during this time. She said that these were all short-term affairs. They were both coping poorly with the rape, the aftermath, and the strain it put on the marriage. She admits to telling her partners that she wanted a divorce, and even told some that Bill abused her. Now, none of this was true. She said she claimed Bill beat her because she didn't want the men to think badly of her for cheating on a guy like Bill, and she also didn't want to discuss the rape with them and the impact that it had on her marriage. The affair with Ricky led to a pregnancy. Bill chose to accept this child as his own, and Bill, Paddy, and their now five children, they were living in Holden together. The marriage wasn't immediately fixed by Patty and the children moving to Holden, but in 1978, Patty said she and Bill had an all-out yelling match where everything that had been building up came out. They decided together to work on rebuilding their marriage after this argument. And by 1980, Patty felt their marriage was actually stronger than it had been prior to their separation. Patty and Bill continued to run Pruitt's Lumber Company together. Bill, being the nice, quiet guy he was, he was often giving people more time to pay than he probably should have. And Patty, the more outgoing, direct one, would have to come up behind him to collect the money. And they continued to be parents together, with Bill coaching sports and Patty volunteering in the classroom. And they were living a pretty standard rural life. In the months leading up to Bill's murder, the family were receiving obscene phone calls. In an even more alarming incident about five months before the murder, one of the daughters is watching TV in her parents' room when she heard a man entering the house. He had knocked prior to entering, but he didn't wait for an answer. She scrambled under the bed and watched the man's feet as he walked into the bedroom and then went into her parents' closet. Now, nothing was stolen, and the Pruitts believed it was the young men from down the road, who Paddy described as being mentally slow. They reported it to the police, but decided not to press charges because, at the time, they didn't think he meant any harm from it. For the record, the man was not in Holden on the night of the murder, so it's unlikely related. However, that he came into the house and went straight for the bedroom closet, that will come up again later. On February 17, 1984, Paddy and Bill had gone out with friends. It was a stormy night and they had got back home around two in the morning on the 18th. Their oldest daughter was 14 at the time and was spending the night with friends, but the other four kids were home and they were asleep. After checking on them, they went straight to bed. They had a long Saturday ahead of them at the lumberyard and with all the kids' activities. Then, at 3.50 in the morning, her neighbour, Cliff Guston, he woke to Paddy banging on his door. 
She had all four kids with her, and she told him that Bill had been hurt. Now, what happened between the Pruitts arriving home at 2am and then 10 to 4, it's the big question here. And we'll discuss that question after we take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. We want to welcome Canvas People back as a sponsor on Insight. CanvasPeople.com is a very easy-to-use photo-to-canvas service. It takes your favorite photo memories and turns them into beautiful artwork for you to enjoy every day. Are you someone who takes a beautiful photo and then lets it sit rotting on your cell phone? Because I am seriously guilty of that. But you can bring that photo to life. These canvases make amazing gifts for friends and family especially grandparents. I just had a baby and I have so many pictures right now on my phone of this baby. Being able to put these on a canvas to gift to grandparents to put up in our own home as a keepsake for him, it's amazing. And Canvas People is so easy to use. These are high quality canvases made here in the U.S. They have fast shipping and great attention to detail. Normally, the 11 by 14 canvases are priced at $69.99, but we have a special deal for you. For a limited time, using promo code INSIGHT, one word, I-N-S-I-G-H-T, at canvaspeople.com, you get one free 11 by 14 canvas. You just pay the shipping. That's canvaspeople.com, promo code INSIGHT. According to Patty, she was asleep next to Bill when she was awoken by a clap of thunder or... Rather, what she thought was a clap of thunder. She was suddenly on the floor, having been pulled from the bed by her hair. A man then held what she believed to be a knife to her throat and raped her. The attacker left, and Patty feared something had happened to Bill. After all, he would have come to her aid if he was able to. She went over to Bill and tried to wake him up. Now, remember, this is the middle of the night in a rural area. It was storming out, so the bedroom was very dark, and she wouldn't have been able to see details very well. Bill was still breathing, but it was rattling. The light didn't work, so Patty quickly checked on the children, who were all sleeping, and went out into the rain to the truck to get a flashlight. She was horrified when she went back up to her room, and with the flashlight, she could see blood soaking Bill's pillow and around the mattress. The phone, like the lights, also wasn't working. She knew Bill needed help, but she didn't feel safe leaving the children behind while she went to get it. So she got the kids up and dressed, quickly, telling them there was a fire. One daughter remembers telling police the next day that as they were leaving the house, the basement door was closed, but she could hear sounds from down there, and she saw some sort of light under the door. This stood out to her because the kids had also noticed that their dad wasn't with them as they're evacuating from this quote-unquote fire. And when they asked Patty about it, she wasn't answering their questions about where he was. So she thought her dad was in the basement fighting the fire. After Patty loaded the kids into the truck, she ran back into the house one last time to check on Bill thinking maybe there was something she could do. Now, Bill was, at best, unconscious at this point, but, I mean, he was likely already dead. But she wouldn't have been able to move him by herself anyway to get him into the truck, so she ran back to the truck and drove a few miles to Cliff Gustin's house. 
Patty stayed at the Gustins while Cliff went to get the police chief. He, the police chief, and two officers arrived at the house. They went directly to the bedroom and found Bill dead in bed with the covers pulled up. It looked as though he had been sleeping when he was shot. The lights were off at the breaker box, so they turned them back on at 4.29 a.m., and based on the time displayed on an electric clock in the kitchen, they knew the lights had been turned off at 3.19 a.m. The house was not searched for an intruder, and Gustin later testified that the basement door was open. So is it possible the intruder was in the basement when Patty and the kids fled? and then left while they were gone. Patty was still at the Gustin's house when an ambulance pulled up, and she was informed that Bill had died. In spite of Patty's story and the injuries to her neck, investigators almost immediately suspected her. She changed her story in two ways, which certainly didn't help. She initially said the men attempt to rape her, but didn't actually rape her. She says that, though it sounds odd, all she could think was how the 1974 rape had negatively affected her marriage, and she didn't want that to happen again, so she didn't want Bill to know. Yes, Bill was dead, but she was still in shock and not processing it. She also lied when asked if she or Bill had extramarital affairs. There are a few other things that made them suspect Patty. Firstly, she had just been raped and her husband shot, yet she took the time to get the children dressed before leaving the house. And then there was no obvious signs of an intruder. It was muddy outside with all the rain, yet there was no muddy shoe prints from an unknown source to be found in the house. When investigators found Bill's life insurance policies, the largest policy was about to lapse the next day. And finally, the 22 caliber gun the Pruitts left in the closet, it was missing. It would later be found when they drained the pond on the property. The gun was usually kept unloaded in the closet. So an intruder would have to have known the gun was in there and then take time to load it. I will interject that it is possible someone else knew the gun was in there. Remember the man from down the street that came in while one of the children was watching TV? Maybe he saw it or told someone else about it. It would later come out that one of Patty's partners during the separation knew about the gun and he had used it himself. Another alternative to this is that the intruder, according to Patty, he had a knife. If he had a knife that may have been his intended weapon, but he only used the gun because he came across it while in the room and the last person to use the gun didn't unload it like they were supposed to. In addition to the gun found in the pond, a boot print matching Patty's boot was found near the gun. The theory is that she shot Bill and threw the gun into the pond. When it didn't go out far enough to sink, she waded out in her boots to throw it further into the pond. Those who support Patty's innocence point to several holes in the early investigation. First, Patty submitted to gunshot residue test and it was negative. This is a good sign toward her innocence, but it's not conclusive. Gunshot residue can wear off in four to six hours. Sometimes people who take their own life with a gun don't test positive for gunshot residue. In looking at the documents that we found, it's not clear when the gunshot residue test happened. In a statement written by Patty, she said she became a suspect within hours in spite of the gunshot residue test being negative. So that makes me think it happened early on. 
But according to an appeals document, the gunshot residue test was administered during the second interview with Patty on February 18th. That occurred at 4 p.m., which would have been 13 hours after the shooting. It's unclear when that test happened. Personally, this doesn't really sway me much, the gunshot residue one way or the other, but there were issues. The police never dusted the breaker box for prints, nor the chest of drawers where the gun was taken from. Friends who came to the house to help clean it found evidence the police missed, like a shell casing and a shoe print in the basement near the breaker box. The police say the shoe print was likely a police officer's, though. There were also pry marks near a lock, though police said that they appeared old, and then according to a review of the case by a law professor at Georgetown, Jane Aiken, the police had tried to pry the door for some reason as well, so then it was impossible to tell which pry marks were already there and which were from the police. Hair samples from the bedroom weren't taken, Patty was not given a medical examination, even though she had been attacked and had cuts on her neck. In 1984, some of this evidence wouldn't have been much good without DNA. The fingerprints would have been, of course. But a lot of the DNA exonerations that happen today are from tests done on evidence collected before we had the technology to test it. Had Patty had a rape kit, had they scraped under her fingernails, there may have been something to test, but because the evidence was just never collected, it can never be tested. Now, a piece that will be important later, very important later, is that a neighbor reported to police that she saw a man sitting in an unfamiliar car near the Pruitt home around the time of the murder. This statement was never disclosed to the defense. We're going to take one more break for a sponsor. In need of great talent for your business, but short on time? You don't have to get lost in a huge stack of resumes to find your perfect hire. You just need the right tools, smarter tools. What if hiring could be easier? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click, so you can rest easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then, ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting so you receive the best possible matches. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidates finding you. It finds them. No wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com site. That's ZipRecruiter.com site. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com site. A week after Bill's death, Patty was charged with capital murder and released to wait for her trial at home with her children, which I think is quite strange. Is that a common thing in the US to be charged with murder and then released? No, and she was actually released on her own recognizance, not on bond, which is extremely unusual now in the 1980s before we had our 1990s era tough on crime. Maybe yes. it was more common, but I've honestly never heard of it happening. 
but I'm assuming it would have been more common in the 80s than it is now. Because it wasn't even house arrest, was it? No, I don't know what her conditions were, but she was allowed to go home without posting bond. Before the trial began, the prosecuting attorney offered a plea deal. If Patty would plead guilty, he'd reduce the charges to second-degree murder and she'd get a 20-year sentence with the possibility of parole in six or seven years. Patty, who maintained her innocence, she turned the plea deal down. She said that she couldn't stand up and tell her children and her family that she killed her husband when she didn't. This is one of the things about this case that stuck with me. So let's talk about plea deals in the U.S. for a quick second. There isn't really an easy way to assess all state cases in the U.S., but looking at federal cases in 2013, 8% of cases were dismissed. Now, for those cases that were not dismissed, 97% of them ended with plea deals. Now, this is interesting because plea deals as a matter of course like this is not actually common around the world but it's exceedingly common in the United States to resolve cases through these plea deals. It's pretty much unheard of in Australia. It's very rare. I looked up the stats in other countries, and it basically, everything said, don't even look at other countries because they really don't do this. But 97% of federal cases were resolved through plea deals. And there are some major drawbacks to this. One is that the prosecutor has an imbalance of power. They get to put the offer out and set the terms. There can be some negotiation, but the prosecutor can extend this or rescind it at any time. I guess my knowledge of plea deals is quite limited, but if could the judge then still overturn it and give it a harsher sentence? Yes, the plea deal is the judge can turn the entire plea deal down and say no, or the judge can give a different sentence than what is recommended by the prosecution. Yes, and the judge also has quite a bit of power in this plea deal, and the defendant has very little. If they don't like the terms of the plea deal, too bad, they don't. that's all they get. One of the things that's more alarming to me, at least to me and hopefully to others, is that the incentive for innocent people to plead guilty is huge. So looking at this case specifically, Patty was offered 20 years with parole eligibility after six. Now, if she opted to go to trial, she was looking at life with parole after 50 years. So 50 years in prison versus six years in prison. I've not even been alive for 50 years. I can't even conceive of all I would miss in my children's lives in 50 years. I could consider six. I would miss things. But I'd be home for weddings and grandchildren and that kind of thing. There is a big incentive for people like Patty to take it, even if they are innocent, because even though you still have the stigma of being guilty of being, say, killing your husband, you still get to live your life and be with your family. And now I can see shaving off a few years or combining charges for a plea deal. It helps our system resolve cases more quickly. But it feels like people are being punished just for exercising their right to a trial when the sentencing is so vastly different from the plea deal to the trial conviction. So if the prosecutor thought Patty was rehabilitated and served her time enough to allow for six years under the plea deal, why in the world does he think she should be locked up for 50 years just because she said she didn't do it? That doesn't make sense to me. And from the reading I've been doing prepping for this case, 
it doesn't make sense to a lot of people. I'm going to put some articles up in our Facebook group that I found that we can chat more about this in our Facebook group if any of our listeners have thoughts on plea deals, especially ones like this where the sentence is vastly different. I mean, you look at the court system as serving justice, as protecting the community, but is it really doing that in this case? Or or in any case, if someone has done something wrong and you're reducing their sentence dramatically, is that really in the best interest of everyone, the perpetrator if they're not guilty, or the victim, or just the general community? Plea deals like this one specifically, it's hard to argue that they're serving anyone or any justice at all, no matter how you look at it. Except the prosecutor, who then their conviction rate is doing quite well because they're getting their convictions. That's true, because if 97% end up plea deals, those are all considered convictions. A 97% conviction rate, that's amazing. Exactly. So Paddy's trial began on April 16, 1985 in Pettis County, Missouri, after a change in venue. The state's case was based on two words that kept being repeated, lust and greed. Paddy's extramarital affairs and her desire for Bill's insurance money motivated her kill, according to the prosecution. This made two big leaps. One, that Paddy's affairs had been ongoing, which they didn't appear to be, and two, that Bill's life insurance policies would have helped her. Now, the Pruitts were in debt. Between personal and business debts, about 170000 in the hole. Both of Bill's insurance policies added together were 93000 So Bill's death, even with these policies, it didn't leave her that much better off. It would mean that she would be a single mum with five kids with a struggling business and then still be in debt, It really doesn't make that much sense. As I said earlier, one of the policies were to lapse the day after the murder if the Pruitts didn't pay the premium. And the amount of that premium? It was $12. Basically, the idea is that she killed her husband only to be still in debt rather than pay the $12 that she had to keep the policy going. Again, it's not the most common sense approach to the situation. In a letter opposing clemency for Paddy written in 2001, the prosecuting attorney made the claim that, quote-unquote, she engaged in hundreds of sexual liaisons, sometimes three or four per day, in pursuit of her efforts to have Bill killed. Though only three testified at the trial, and none of them had been with Paddy for six or more years prior to Bill's murder. You would think if there were hundreds of sexual liaisons, three or four per day, he could have found more than three to testify. Three or four a day. That, yeah, that's just, it sounds ridiculous. As she was raising five children and running a business. Exactly. So the trial lasted three days. Patty did take the stand in her own defense, but in looking it over, I don't know that it helped or hurt her any, we've kind of boiled this down to two things that probably convicted her. First is the autopsy, and second is the testimony of the three of the men she had affairs with. A pathologist from Kansas City named James Bridgens testified that the shooter would have had to have been standing on Patty's side of the bed and would have had to lean over a sleeping Patty to shoot Bill. There were two shots to his head, one was to his temple and one was to the back of his head. 
He also testified that the shot to the back of his head, which he testified was the second shot, severed the brainstem, and this would have been instantly fatal. So there would have been no way Patty heard Bill struggling to breathe, as she reported after the attacker left the room, though the first shot may have left Bill with ragged breathing. One of the sources for this episode is a Riverfront Times investigative article on the case, and in it, they make a brief mention of two cases Dr. Bridgens was involved with where his conclusions were challenged, including one where three other experts testified that a bullet was fired into a woman's mouth, yet Dr. Bridgens said it came from behind. When I went to look up these cases to get more information, I actually found other cases that Dr. Bridgens was part of where he had his findings challenged by multiple other experts, and one, in fact, where it looked like he completely overlooked some significant injuries in an autopsy. And something similar did happen here. The first autopsy indicated that Bill had only been shot once. When Dr. Bridgens was brought in eight months before the trial, he said there were two shots, one to the temple and one through the mouth. With this discrepancy, the body was exhumed and they looked at it and the shots were actually to the temple and to the back of the head. So there was some confusion between the examiners and there ended up being three different conclusions made at various times of how many shots there were and where they were found. Dr. Bridgens also testified that the cuts on Patty's neck appeared to be self-inflicted. The defense did not counter the pathologist's report with their own expert, and one juror told the Riverfront Times that this testimony was damaging to Patty's case. The other major issue that likely led to Patty's conviction, like Charlie said, was the testimony of the men that she cheated with. It could be argued that this type of evidence wouldn't be allowed into the courtroom today because none of these affairs had happened close to Bill's death. None had happened after Paddy and Bill had reconciled, as I said before, it was more than six years in the past. One man testified that Paddy told him in 1978 that she wished Bill would die and talked about killing him in his sleep. Another said that Paddy offered to buy him his own lumber company if he would kill Bill, claiming the life insurance would make her rich. He also said she told him that Bill beat her. And then there was Ricky Mitz, the man who fathered her youngest child. He made two police statements. In the first, he said Paddy never asked him to kill Bill. He also said he was aware of the gun and he'd even shot it before. In the second statement, about a week later... He said that Patty had offered him $10,000 to kill her husband. These men may have had ulterior motives to testify. One had an assault charge still making its way through the courts. It was dismissed not long after Patty's trial. And Ricky Mitz, after telling the police that Patty tried to hire him for murder, he went to Patty and proposed marriage. He had a plan that he would divorce his wife, he would marry Patty, and then he could be legally protected from having to testify against her, because in the U.S., spouses cannot be compelled to testify against each other in a criminal trial. Now, obviously, she turned him down, and then he testified against her. Testimony was also offered by a deputy who interviewed Patty for something like 17 hours, but only 15 minutes of this was recorded, and Patty was not provided with a written account to sign or to confirm what was said. So this 
testimony was going off the memory of the deputy alone. Some of the things he said have been disputed by Patty, largely things she supposedly said about her sex drive and that her fire burns hotter than most, which doesn't sound like something most women would say. The defence did what they could to poke holes in the state's case. For instance, the boot print found near the gun after they drained the pond. Now, it matched Paddy's boots, and Paddy's boots did have mud on them. Witnesses disagreed on how much mud was on them, but everyone in the courtroom could see that the laces were clean and the boots were clean on the inside. In trying to reenact waiting out to where the gun was, there was no way to do it without staining the inside of the boots with mud, because the gun was out in 11 inches of water and the boots, they only went up to 8 inches. Paddy's clothing was not covered in mud and the police checked the plumbing for signs of mud in the event that Paddy washed it off, but they couldn't find any. One of Paddy's daughters, who was 12 at the time of the murder, she testified that she had been out in the pond when it was iced over with her dad a few weeks prior to the murder and had worn her mother's boots. Her foot broke through the ice, and she believes that's how the footprint ended up at the bottom of the pond. Paddy took the stand on her own defence to tell the story in her own words. This is always a risky move, but in this case, it didn't seem to work for or against it. Three days after the trial started, it was given to the jury, and the jury was initially split seven in favour of conviction and five against. And this is a significant split. It's not just a few people with doubts one way or the other. The jury sent the judge word that they were deadlocked and that they wanted to talk to the judge. The judge said that they could not and that their deliberation should continue. And he sent this message through the bailiff and the bailiff was new to the job. He asked the judge what would happen if they couldn't reach a decision. And the judge made a comment to the bailiff kind of offhand that they would just have to try harder. When the bailiff went back to the jury, he told them this. He told them that the judge said they should try harder. That is not what the judge wanted to be conveyed to the jury because it could be seen as pressure to reach a verdict, and it isn't appropriate for a judge to pressure the jury into a verdict. In the end, after six hours of deliberation, four before the instruction to try harder and two after, they came back with a guilty verdict. Patty and her children cried, and it's been reported that Bill's family clapped. Patty was allowed to bond out pending sentencing. Shortly after returning home, a neighbour named Ethel Juanita Stevens called her after seeing the guilty verdict in the paper. You will see her referred to as both Ethel and Juanita, but we will call her Ethel because that's how it appears in legal filings. Ethel told Patty she was confused as to why she wasn't called to testify. Ethel is the woman we referred to earlier who saw someone parked near the Pruitt house on the night of the murder. She said that within days of the crime, she told the sheriff about this conversation. This was never disclosed to the defence. Patty's attorney asked for a new trial based on their evidence and the improper instruction to the jury. The sheriff took the stand and said he couldn't remember the conversation happening, although Ethel was able to give details such as where they were when she told him the information. The judge denied this request, so they appealed. With an appeal, you have to include everything all at once. Every single thing you might ever want to raise on appeal, you have to put in there together. 
And if you don't raise these issues on your initial appeal, you're restricted on being able to bring it up later. So this appeal for a new trial included a handful of issues. And the first was a Miranda violation. Anyone who watches American crime dramas knows we have certain constitutional rights when arrested, and we have to be informed of those rights. Patty was interviewed by the police four times in the days after the murder. She was not told of her rights for the first two interviews, the first being just after the murder at 5 a.m. at the neighbor's house, and the second being that same day at 4 p.m. at the police station. While we have to be informed of our rights if we're being questioned as a suspect, we do not need to be informed if we are questioned as a witness. So the question here is, was Patty being questioned as a suspect that first day? Now, of course, the deputy says no, she was not a suspect. But because he had conducted the gunshot residue test on her, he brought her to the police station, and he had already seized the insurance policies from the home, Patty's side was arguing that he did see her as a suspect. But in the end, the appeals court ruled that these were witness questioning and not custodial interrogations, so her Miranda rights did not need to be read. So they denied her on this point. The second issue raised was the bailiff's comment and how it pressured the jury to reach a verdict. However, the state provided affidavits from every juror. They all said their verdict was not influenced by the comment. The court ruled this was not coercion and this point was also denied. The third issue raised was a Brady violation, and most true crime podcast fans know all about Brady violations. In the case of Brady v. Maryland, the Supreme Court ruled that the defendant has a constitutional right to any exculpatory evidence that the state finds. By not turning over the information provided by Ethel Stevens about the car seen near the property, Patty's rights were violated. But Brady violations aren't the automatic appeal issue that we may think they are. Even if the state failed to turn over exculpatory evidence, there are more qualifications to overturn a verdict. This met all the burdens of that, except probably the most important one. Would this information have resulted in a different verdict? And the court ruled that it probably wouldn't have, and so this was also denied. The fourth issue involved the jury selection process. During the questioning of prospective jurors, the state asked them if they would have trouble convicting a mother of five minor children of capital murder and sending her away for 50 years. The state struck all jurors who showed reluctance. The appeals court found this proper and denied this point as well. The fifth issue is the testimony of her affairs. The phrase more prejudicial than probative sums up the issue with this. The information prejudiced the jury against Patty more than it provided useful information in the case. And while it wasn't exactly phrased this way in the appeals documents, it could be said that Patty was convicted based on the, quote, slut theory. Basically, she was a bad person because she cheated on her husband and bad people do bad things. Now, this point was denied because the testimony of the men was important for establishing motive, but more importantly, it established premeditation, which was needed for a capital murder charge. It showed that Patty wished her husband dead up to nine years before the murder. So again, the appeals court denied this point. The last issue was that the Pruitt residence was searched without a warrant. Patty gave her permission for them to search, which means that they didn't need a warrant. 
But she said she didn't know she had a choice and could tell them that they needed to get a warrant. Now, honestly, I wouldn't know this either. I would assume they had the right to search a crime scene, even a private home, without a warrant. She also wasn't told the extent of the search. There was no case law to back up her points on this, and she admitted she did consent to the search, so the final point was denied. In April of 1986, with her appeal denied, she turned herself in at the county jail to start her sentence of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for 50 years. Her children went to live with Patty's parents on the same ranch in Lee Summit where Patty had grown up and where she lived when she had met Bill. This wouldn't be in sight if we didn't talk alternative theories of the crime, even though there is a conviction in this case. Now, the first theory is that the story Patty told from day one is true. An unknown intruder entered their home. By all accounts, Bill was one of the kindest and gentlest people you could ever meet, and it was hard for people to imagine a man like that having any enemies. He ran his business above board. If anything, he was too generous. He had debts related to his business and his property, but those were bank debts. It's not as though he had gambling debts or he borrowed from some loan shark. But there is one group of people he may have made nervous, and that would be drug traffickers. Bill and Patty had become aware of the drug issues in Holden and the county around Holden when their oldest started high school. The whole reason they had moved away from the city was to raise their kids away from all of that. So Bill started his own investigation into the drug trafficking with some other parents. Patty says he was close to uncovering the dealers. He had a notebook that he used to keep with him, and that never turned up after the murder. Maybe Bill was killed because the wrong person knew he was getting close. The other theory is that one of the men Patty had an affair with came and murdered Bill, not because Patty told them to, but because they either wanted him out of the way or they possibly believed Patty when she said that Bill was abusive. Patty said she didn't recognize the attacker, though it was dark and she was in a panic, so there is a chance that she didn't give enough attention to the attacker or she couldn't see him properly. This theory was actually, for a while, my... I don't want to say favorite theory, but this was one that I was leaning towards for a while. But I just have a few reservations with this one. And one is that a man protecting her from an abusive husband wouldn't also violently assault her. So I I don't know that it would necessarily be that motive. Also, these affairs were long over. Meanwhile, the prosecuting attorney, like we said, said there were hundreds of men over the years Only three testified, only four ever gave statements, and all of them were over by 1978. But maybe it was someone who was infatuated with Patty, who she did not reciprocate affection for. And it might not be someone that she recognized, because as we've talked about before, people can be stalked by people they have no idea who they are. In 1992... Patty had been in prison for a while, and the kids had been growing up with their grandparents. Patty's 18-year-old son, Matt, was arrested for drunk driving, and he told a deputy that his mother didn't kill his father, but he knew who did. And he also said he would be dead soon. He ended up bailing out, and the deputy told him to come back when he was sober, and they would talk about it. 
He had also told a friend that he knew something his siblings didn't know about their dad's murder. He would have been 10 at the time of the shooting. So what could he have known? One of the big questions I've had in this case, Bill was shot twice. So we're talking about two gunshots and not one of the children, four of them home at the time, woke up. Is it possible one of them did wake up? Did Matt wake up? to this gunshot and maybe see the intruder leave the house. Maybe he recognized him. Maybe there was something that he remembers about the intruder. It's hard to imagine that he wouldn't say something when his mom is on trial for the murder. But, I mean, he was 10 and scared, so maybe he wouldn't have. But we won't know because he was staying with a friend at that time And when he bailed out of jail, he went to that friend's house. He was later found dead on his grandparents' property from a gunshot wound, and the weapon nearby was a gun from the friend's house. The death was ruled a suicide. Some family members believe he may have been murdered because of what he knew. His oldest sister had received a phone call not long after Matt's death that said, quote, everything is a sign, your brother is a sign. That could just be someone messing with her. Most likely. And it's absolutely cruel. Matt had been struggling with depression. At least one of Matt's friends has said he thinks it was from the depression and the drinking, but that the depression was because of what he knew about the case. And that would be a lot of guilt to carry around with him for all those years. And I could understand it. Of course it eats away at someone. Right. If he really felt he knew something and his mom had been in prison at that point for six years, I'm I'm sure he was feeling a lot of guilt. And this would be an incredible burden for all of the children, even if they didn't know anything, to have lost their father, to have lost their mother, to have the stigma of being the kids who go and visit their mother in prison. I mean, that's that's a lot for adolescents to handle. And all the dirty laundry that was aired in the trial with the affairs and, and the rumours about Patty saying that Bill abused her and the rape. And that's a lot of information to become public knowledge. It's a lot. It's a lot. So the big question here is, is Patty guilty or is she an innocent woman in jail? If I was on the jury, I don't. I don't know if there's enough there to convict her. I think there's enough, re- there's, there's reasonable doubt there. I agree. I had a hard time with this one for a while. I tend to be, I always say if I'm on a jury of one, it would still be a hung jury because I can't make up my mind. <laughs> I do think due to the lack of evidence collected, like fingerprints from the breaker box, had they dusted the breaker box and found Patty's fingerprints only, you know, really clear fingerprints of another person, we would know that someone else turned off those lights or Patty likely turned them off. I think there was evidence there that wasn't collected. And that hole gives me reasonable doubt. It's hard for me to conceive of of an intruder coming in. She was the only adult there. The gun was in the closet, one that they owned that they usually kept unloaded. There are a lot of pieces that make it almost hard for me to reason my way into saying she's absolutely innocent. And I'm telling you, I'm not a gut feeling person. I like to use thinking and reason and logic. 
but I'm going gut feeling here anyway, and I don't think she did it. I think she's innocent. The gun stands out to me as well. The fact that no one else knew the gun was there. It, gen- it was supposed to be unloaded. How could someone know it was there, took time to load it, and then she took time to dress the children before leaving? There is some things that do make me question her innocence. However, as you said, gut feeling, I couldn't send her away for 50 years. And I think the prosecution knew that. That's why they went for the plea deal. I agree. I think the prosecution knew that their case wasn't that strong. And I think that's why they played up her being a slut, being a bad person, cheating on a nice guy, because that's what they had. That's all they had. They had these people from years ago testifying of things she said years ago, supposedly said years ago. At least two of them had some incentive to say what the prosecution wanted them to. Since her conviction, Patty has done some very significant good work in the prison. She not only teaches aerobics, she had trained six women to be instructors and all six were able to find jobs as aerobic instructors after getting out of prison. As we've discussed before in this podcast, employment after incarceration isn't easy to say the least, and she gave these women a chance. She's won awards for her poetry and writing, which you can find online, and works to put on performances within the jail. She started and helped with various programs to keep inmates and their children connected. An especially touching program she has been involved with is recording inmates reading stories to their children and then giving the tape and the book to the child. In the 30 years Patty has been in prison, we couldn't even list all the good she's done there. But it isn't just all volunteer work and teaching aerobics. She's been subject to strip searches, including searches by male guards. As a rape victim, you can imagine how hard these would be for her. Her cell has been searched routinely, and she's found that items that aren't contraband, like her writing, they go missing. She has said there are worse things she could write about, but it isn't safe for her to write about them when she's incarcerated. She worries about retribution from the prison officials. Her work in the prison is a large basis for pleas of clemency for Patty. Her appeals are exhausted unless new evidence is discovered. But like we said, not a lot of evidence was collected. And aside from waiting another 20 years for parole at the age of 86, Patty and her family and a lot of other people have been working on clemency. Now, clemency is essentially mercy from the governor. The governor of Missouri can extend clemency in three ways. The first is a full pardon. The conviction stands, but the person is free from all punitive measures. If they're in prison, they're released. If they were convicted of a crime that carries a restriction on their rights, like the right to vote or the right to own a firearm, they are then free from those restrictions as well, and their rights are fully restored. A partial pardon is like a full pardon, except they're not free of all the consequences. They may still have some restrictions. And the last one, which is the one that Patty is most likely to get, if she gets any, is the commutation of the sentence. The governor can reduce the sentence. And since Patty has served 30 years already, it's likely he would reduce it to 30 years or less, and that would allow her to be released. And she was very nearly granted clemency in 2000, but the governor changed his mind after objections from Bill's family, the prosecuting attorney, and the sheriff's deputy who investigated the case. But the people on her side are also influential. 
A number of clergy from Missouri signed an open letter to the then-Governor Jane Nixon in 2010, asking for clemency for Paddy. Former President Jimmy Carter stated that he was adding his voice to those who want a full review of her record as a prisoner to determine if she should be released. Several attorneys and law professors who have reviewed the case and the testimony full believe that either Paddy is innocent, that she didn't get a fair trial, or both. There was hope last year, as Governor Jane Nixon was leaving office, that he would grant clemency on his way out, but he didn't. So now the family and supporters of Paddy Pruitt are starting over with Missouri's new governor. We will post the information in our show notes on how to contact the governor if you do support clemency for Paddy. We did our best to cover the strongest aspects of the case for and against Paddy, so you can make up your own mind. Is it the fact that an innocent woman went to jail, or if she's guilty, was her sentence fair? I truly feel that her sentence was punishment for taking her case to trial, which going to trial and facing her accusers is her right. If the state thought she could plead out to 20 years with parole after six to seven, her sentence after trial should have been much closer to that. I do in my gut think she's innocent, but even if she's guilty, I feel like she's paid her debt to society. I am not for, you know, my disclaimer here, I'm generally not a lock them up and throw away the key person anyway. But in this case, it seems even more clear to me that she shouldn't be in jail right now. 50 years does seem, it's, it's a ridiculous sentence for if she's guilty, considering what she has done in prison, the good she has done. She's not a danger to society, even if she is guilty. I see no reason why she can't get clemency and get released. If we want to almost pretend that part of her prison system is rehabilitation, which um, I think is just a dream I hold that part of our prison system is rehabilitation. We could argue pretty strongly that she's been rehabilitated. She's not going to be violent after her release. She shouldn't be in there. And I do support clemency for Patty Pruitt. And I did write to Governor Jay Nixon as a Missouri citizen about clemency before he left office. Obviously, My influence isn't any greater than Jimmy Carter's, you know, former president (laughs) of the United States, because it didn't go anywhere. But I do support clemency for Patty. She's had no history of violence before Bill's death, even if she did kill Bill. She showed no evidence of being violent while she is in prison. She's done a lot of good. I support clemency for Patty Pruitt as well. I, I do encourage everyone to go look more into the case Come up with your own opinion, and if you do support it, definitely write, do what you can to help. Thank you all for tuning in, and a huge thank you to all our guests who filled in for me while I was on maternity leave, and for Allie for handling the scripts and the editing on all those guest host episodes. Uh, Huge thanks to Christy from Canadian True Crime where she helped us with the scripting and the editing, which was really big because I had a baby and Allie was in the process of moving. So big, big thank you to everyone. And we also want to thank our Patreon supporters, Sarah G, Tracy W, Aaron P, Jude M, and Lindsay D. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. And to our five-star reviewers, Kelly Sansosi, Smashly 2184, Murderino first and foremost, 
Jay Goodluck, who I'm going to take a wild guess and say that is the Forgotten News podcast host. If you haven't checked out Forgotten News podcast, I recommend it. They're old true crime stories and things that made the headlines. It's a great podcast. Uh, Jim's been a huge supporter of Insight for a long time. If this is a different Jay Goodluck, then just, you know, whatever, still check out the podcast. Also, thank you to Flossy Pants. And if you want to talk to us, we have a Facebook page and a group. Just search for Insight on Facebook. You can talk to me on Twitter at InsightfulPod. Instagram is Allie at InsightPod. You can talk to whichever one of us checks the email that day at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. Our website is InsightPod. And if you'd like to support the show, we do have a Patreon and we have different rewards up there. Patreon.com slash InsightPod. The reward that most people like the most, you can get at $2 a month. We post a new bonus episode and a bonus episode from last year as well. So you'll get two episodes a month. We will see you guys back next week.